Amen? That's right. So, those of you planning on buying expensive Christmas gifts, cancel it. All they need is a box. Hey, that's okay, even if they're nine years old. Give them a box. That's all they need. Let them see what they do with the box. A 15-year-old, give them a refrigerator box. Have them do something with it. Build a house because they might need it in a few years. Amen? <laughs> right? So, today, we are continuing our vids or something going on with the mic. Yeah, kind of booming. Anyway. <laughs>
Verse 1, Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother Jehodan from Jerusalem. Amaziah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but here it is, but not wholeheartedly. Verse 3, when Amaziah was well established as king, he executed the officials who had assassinated his father, that was Joash. If you remember, Joash died of a coup. And the advisors came against him and assassinated him. That is who Amaziah. However, he did not kill, verse 4, he did not kill the children of the assassins, for he obeyed the command of the Lord as written by Moses in the book of the law. Parents must not put, be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. Verse 5, then Amaziah organized the army, assigning generals and captains for all Judah and Benjamin. He took a census and found that he had an army of 300,000 select troops, 20 years old and older, all trained in the use of spear and shield. He also paid about 7,500 pounds of silver to hire 100,000 experienced fighting men from Israel. That's key. But a man of God came to him and said, Your Majesty, do not hire troops from Israel, for the Lord is not with Israel. He will not help those people from Ephraim. If you let them go with your troops into battle, you will be defeated by the enemy no matter how well you fight. God will overthrow you, for he has the power to help you or to trip you up. You might want to highlight that. Verse 9, Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about all the silver I paid to hire the army of Israel? The man of God replied, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. So Amaziah discharged the hired troops and sent them back to Ephraim. This made them very angry with Judah, and they returned home in a great rage. Then Amaziah summoned his courage and led his army to the Valley of Salt, where they killed 10,000 Edomite troops from Seir. They captured another 10,000 and took them to the top of a cliff and threw them off, dashed them to the pieces of the rock below. Meanwhile, verse 13, the hired troops that Amaziah had sent home raided several of the towns of Judah between Samaria and Beth Horon. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. When King Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought with him idols taken from the people of Seir. He set them up as his own gods, bowed in front of them, bowed down in front of them, and offered sacrifices to them. This made the Lord very angry, and he sent a prophet to ask, Why do you turn to gods who could not even save their own people from you? But the king interrupted him and said, Since when have I made you the king's counsel? Be quiet now before I have you killed. So the prophet stopped with this warning. I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have refused to accept my counsel. Let's pray. So Lord, we come today looking at this story, God, and longing for you to speak to us. And so our response today, Lord, and our request today is the same as young Samuel that we talked about a few weeks ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want you to see is individual sin. And you can write that down. The first thing we see in this passage is individual sin. Look at verse 4. However, he did not kill the children of the assassins, for he obeyed the command of the Lord, which was parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. This is a central tenet in our faith. Just as faith can't be inherited, 
we also realize that we must be accountable for our sin alone. So our sin is an individual sin. Now, our sin affects others. Don't get me wrong in that. But sin is individual. We have all sinned, you know this verse, and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. There are no exceptions to this principle. There are no workarounds. There are no loopholes. There's no way around this fact. We are responsible for our own sins and will pay the consequences of our own sins. You see, it was customary in that day when there was a change of power that naturally who would assume the throne would then kill all the descendants of the previous king, of the previous monarch, the previous one in power. And in fact, Amaziah actually followed the Lord's command in that he did not continue on. He actually followed the book of Moses the, uh, back in the, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in the law. He followed that. That is a central tenet of our faith, that, there, that we are responsible for individual sin. Individual sin. So that's the first thing that we need to notice. Secondly, we need to notice that influence is important. Influence is important. You see, what was happening here is, again, he was choosing expediency because he needed to build up his troops. King Amaziah was low in his troop numbers and his troop levels, and he needed to go out to war. And he didn't have enough troops, so what is he going to do? So he goes and he hires from the northern kingdom of Israel, he hires 100,000 troops. And this man of God comes to him in verse 7, and he says, don't hire troops from Israel. Don't tie yourself with them. Don't enter into an agreement with them. Why does he say this? Because they are going to influence you. Right? There's a reason that when, we, when Joshua and the Israelites were preparing, after they left Egypt, wandered around 40 years, right? Just a quick backtrack there. They're about to enter into the promised land. There's a reason that God commands them as they go into the promised land that they are to take no prisoners, but they are to destroy those around them because the pagan cultures were going to creep in on them. And if they didn't get rid of the pagan cultures, the pagan cultures were coming in on them. And what did we see happen? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. And that may seem harsh. That may seem, well, why, why would God do such a thing? We need to realize the culture and the time in which they were in. But the heart of it is God had a covenant relationship with his people. I will be your God, as we told Abraham, and your descendants, and they will be my people. They entered into this covenant relationship, and God wanted to make sure that they would not go the way of the pagan cultures. Why? Because he is holy, and his people should be holy. So what we see here is that influence matters. Influence is important. The reason that the prophet came up and said, hey, whoa, 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 wait a second. Think about what you're doing. You're contracting with the enemy, so to speak. You're contracting with those who have totally turned their back on God. This is not the Israel that you used to know. These are not your brothers, cousins, and uncles that you used to know. This is a new Israel, and they are totally pagan. This is King Ahab and Jezebel's Israel. And look what they have done. Even though they're kin, he comes and says, you need to check yourself, and you need to wait and look at who you're associating with. It didn't matter how many troops or resources the king could accumulate. He was doomed to fail because he failed to think about who he was contracting with. He wanted the quick and easy victory. Again, convenience over conviction. 
Too often, what do we do? We take shortcuts, right? Because we want it quick, easy, fast, done now. We let our guard down and we go down the slippery slope of comparisons and comfort. We choose to enter into agreements with or do business with someone that we know will bring us down and entice us to compromise our integrity and our position. But that is not what God calls us to do. In fact, what I'm saying, I'm not saying that you shouldn't associate with someone who's not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all. Don't take that from the scripture. But before you enter into agreements, you need to find out and you need to know this. Am I going to influence them and then they, are they going to influence me? And you need to go down the road. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago that we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Remember Jesus said that? We're to be intellectually cunning. We're to think a few steps ahead. We need to think about if I entangle myself with this individual, this company, this position, is this going to compromise who I am? Is this going to compromise my name? Is this going to compromise my integrity? Because that's what was on the line for Amaziah. So hear me, before we enter into agreements, we need to know these two things. We need to be light in the darkness, but first of all, we must guard our heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart. We need to guard what we're letting in. Okay, so if we're faced with entering into a contract with a company, with an individual, we need to think about, am I going to be able to guard my heart in the midst of this? And the way that you guard your heart in the midst of it is you put that filter on it and you say, is this pleasing to the Lord or is this disappointing to the Lord? Will this bring him glory by what I'm doing and, and by the conversations I'm associating with or is it not? Secondly, not just do we need to guard our heart, but we need to gird up for battle. We need to gird up for battle. Now, that's, that's kind of an old term, girding, okay? Let me explain what girding is. In, in, in the old times and in this culture, you know, they wore dresses, right? That basically, that's, they wore a long linen cloth. And so they didn't have trousers or jeans, Levi's, were, that, that didn't happen, okay? What they had was a long toga-looking thing. And so what they would do, when they were getting ready for battle, they would gather all of their loose stuff up. They would hike it up, wrap it around their belt, cinch their belt up, and tighten themselves. Why? Because they were getting ready for battle. They were getting ready to run. They were getting ready to go on the offense. They needed to carry a lot of equipment, and they needed to go against the enemy. They couldn't have all – they couldn't have a dress. Getting. And so when you, when, you, when you see the phrase gird up, okay, and you typically see it in – King James Version, which is the one I'm quoting here, they mean that you are getting ready. You're preparing yourself. And I think too many times we go into situations naively thinking that we don't need to prepare ourselves for the battle that is going to face us. Hear me. It is a spiritual warfare that is going on. And to think anything otherwise is naive. Jesus told us, you will face persecution. You will sacrifice something for my sake. In fact, he said it like this. He said that if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily. You need to deny yourselves and come and follow me. Those are potent words. 
And those are heavy words, but what he's saying is you will have to sacrifice something. It will cost you to follow Jesus. I think too many times we give this fairy tale, even to our children, and saying that following Jesus is going to be hunky-dory. And it's just going to be everything's cool and great. Hear me. Following Jesus will cost you, but following Jesus is worth it. Amen? Amen? So who are you letting influence you? Have you girded yourself up for battle? 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully in the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. Gird up for battle. Guard your heart. Gird up for battle. And then say, God, do you want me to enter into an agreement, enter into a relationship with this individual? Whether we're talking about the dating relationship, whether we're talking about a business relationship, we must ask ourselves those questions. By the way, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. Amen? So if you're seeing bad fruit now before you enter into the agreement or relationship, you need to really think about what fruit is going to be produced after you enter into the agreement or relationship. So ask yourself, who are you influencing and who is influencing you? Because the king chose convenience over conviction. But here's the deal. It's our third point. Integrity involves sacrifice. Integrity involves sacrifice. Look at verse 9. So Amaziah, he's considering this. He, he, he thinks he needs to obey here, and he would be right, that he needs to obey the prophet of God. And he asked, he says, but what about all the silver I paid to hire the army of Israel? The man of God replied, and I love this reply, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Amen? Amen. Seeing the king didn't want to waste his money, the, the, the amount of silver, uh, 7,500 pounds of silver is what he paid. That is an exorbitant amount for those 100,000 mercenary troops that he hired from Israel. The most conservative estimate would be 170,000. The most exorbitant estimate would be $1.7 million in today's standards. So he unloaded some cash to hire these troops and increase his levels. And, and the way it worked back then is when you contracted with a foreign country and a king, you said, okay, I need 100,000 troops. He'd say, okay, send me gold, silver, pounds of it, tons of it, right? And they would carry it over, and it wouldn't go to the troops. It went to the king's coffers. It went to the house of the king and to his treasury. He would then be the one that would then divvy it out. So you recognize these troops have left and have been hired, but they've gotten nothing, okay? There's, they've gotten no pay, and the pay that they expected in a typical arrangement like this, the pay that they expected was they would get the loot from whatever people that they would be conquering. See, that was kind of the deal. It's kind of like, you know, when you're waiting tables, right? You get paid very low hourly, but when you go wait the table, right, you're hoping that you do a good service and that you get the loot, Right? You get, you get the money. Uh, they tip you for great service. And so that's your hope. And your hope is that you even make more than you would ever make in just making $10 an hour somewhere. And sometimes you do that. But that's the kind of arrangement. So these soldiers are expecting something. They've entered into an agreement. They think payday's coming because they, they, they want the loot of the conquering people. After they pillage these towns, they go and they get all the stuff. Well, that 
That's not going to happen because now the king says he's going to obey God and he's going to cancel their contract and he's going to send them packing. And can you imagine? They're like, what? Excuse me? I think I heard you wrong. No, you, you canceled our contract. You just hired us. This doesn't make any sense. No, no, you heard me right. Your, cancel, your contract has been canceled. Go back home to Israel. Well, they're fighting mad at this point. Literally fighting mad. So they go back home and they pillage the town. They take it upon themselves. They go, and it's sad. And the king well knows this when he's making this decision. He knows they're expecting to get paid by conquering the enemies. But these mercenaries are so ruthless, they take it upon themselves that they go and grab the loot for themselves. See, the king knew this. He knew what it was going to cost. It was going to cost lives, it was going to cost his reputation, and it was going to cost money. And hear me, when you take a stand and you're going to be a person of integrity, it will cost you. It's not going to be the easy route. It's not going to be the expedient route. And hear me, many times we think we're too far into a contract. We think we're too far into a relationship. We think we've invested too much to back out. But that's the lie from the enemy. If you're wanting to make a spiritual decision, the first place you look is not your checkbook. Amen? If you're wanting to make a decision that is pleasing to the Lord and you know he is nudging you in a direction and he is calling you to do something, don't go looking at the account because that is not where you will find your answers. See, we need to resist the devil and he will flee. When God is impressing upon you to leave a situation or dissolve agreement, guess what his promise is? He will provide a way out. How do I know this? Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure Amaziah chose to get out of the agreement and of the relationship. And it cost him dearly. Jesus said these words, speaking of cost and sacrifice. He said, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. It's not that we get more stuff or greater rewards. No, here's the beauty of it. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you don't get more stuff because you follow me. You get more of me. You get more Jesus. And that is the ultimate goal. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be, wow, look at all the stuff. Look at all the materials. Not at all. It's going to be, wow, look at Jesus. And isn't he worth it? Isn't he worth it? Jesus is always worth it. Always worth it. Circle that, highlight it, star it, asterisk. Jesus is always worth it. So the king made that decision. And he was promised victory. And he received victory. But sadly, he didn't stay following God. Let's look at the last point. 
The last point I want you to see is this. There's an invitation to repent. The king is offered a chance at repentance. So they go and they, they go and they defeat the foreign enemy. And they take back, he takes back these foreign little gods and he goes and sets them up in his tent and starts to worship them. And the man of God, here he comes, and he says, hey, king, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And the king says, <laughs> you love this, right? This is the ultimate prideful statement. Who do you think you are? That's what he says. Now, this is the same guy who just talked to him just a few, just a few days ago. And he followed in obedience. Now he's coming to him, and his response is totally prideful. What do we, why, why is this? Because success will cause you to be selfish. Amen? There, I believe that the greatest tool that the enemy likes to use, it's not, it's not when you're desperate and hungry and poor and destitute. It's when you're successful and you are meeting all the metrics and you think that you can do life on your own and you don't think that you need Jesus. That's when the enemy, that's where he likes you to be, and that is when he starts to think, I, he starts to get in your mind and say, well, I got this. I can do this. Well, 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 maybe that wasn't all God that gave me that. Look what I'm enjoying now. And that's what's crept into the king's mind. Success causes us to be selfish if we're not careful. It is after we experience victory that we need to be even more vigilant in guarding our heart against pride and self-reliance. I would contend to you, you know the hardest people group to reach? I would contend to you that the hardest people group to reach is the affluent. Not the poor and destitute in India. No, no, they, they know they need something. It's those who are affluent and those who think, I've got everything I need why are you trying to sell me this Jesus? That's the toughest mission field to break into and break through because of success and the pride that it brings upon a person. But here is the beautiful thing of our God, and I want you to capture this. <coughs> the beautiful thing of Jesus is he always gives you and me an opportunity to repent. You know that? It's out of God's love that he sends this prophet to the king and says, hey, king, you've got these idols that you're worshiping now. That's not a good idea. And he gives him a chance to repent. But unfortunately, the king responds with pride, says, get out of here. And here's the closing statement of the prophet. He says, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and you have refused, he word, to accept my counsel. See, every sin is forgivable except the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is rejection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That is the unpardonable sin. You can't get around that. So he offers the king a chance to repent. We're always given a chance to repent out of God's grace. He gives us that chance. Even the dying thief, we sang this just a few minutes ago, even, even the dying thief, as vile as he was, as the song says, he was offered a chance to repent on the cross, and he did so. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we repent, it's a military term that means an about face. 
We were running towards our sin, and now we're running towards Jesus. It's an about face. It's a military term. Do you remember the two things that John Newton said in the video clip last week? I love this line. He says, two things I know for sure. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Amen. At the end of the day, that's all we need to know. That's what we need to confess. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But he is patient with you. Thank you, Jesus. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And Romans 2.4 says this, do, you, do not despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, and not recognizing that it is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. See, it's his kindness that he gives you, the grace-filled truths that he gives you, sometimes those hard truths, because he is longing for you to come back to him. You remember in the story of the prodigal son, and the prodigal runs off, and he wastes all of his father's riches, right? Now, the father didn't go out there and start writing him more checks, did he? No, he, he didn't do that. The father waited on the porch, signifying that I'm unchanging, I'm always here. The invitation to come and find rest and peace and restoration is always here. You just need to take that first step of repentance back. Amen? And that's where the father stands today. If Amaziah had chosen repentance, even after this, here's the good news about our God. The good news about our God is that he gives the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance. But there comes the point when you choose to reject Christ, that that is the unpardonable sin. But the hope for us today is that even in our dying breath, and I've seen many deathbed conversions. I've seen many end-of-life end of conversions. And I know that behind, beyond a shadow of a doubt that if the dying thief can say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, then I know that they can be saved as well. So let me close with this today. No matter where you are, you are not too far gone from the grace of God. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your past is. You are not too far gone beyond his grace. And all you need to do is take the first step of repentance back towards the Father who is lovingly standing on the front porch. No, he's not going to continue to write you checks and continue to enable your sinful lifestyle or running away from him. But he stands there firm in his truth and in his grace. And he says, come to me, my child. And I will give you rest. Let's pray. So Jesus, as we come to this moment today, God, we know that these are hard truths. And there's a lot to examine today, God, but primarily you're asking us a few questions today. First of all, Are we willing to count the cost and the sacrifice and what it takes to be obedient and to follow you, realizing that you are worth it? And 
Lord, for some of us today, we, we may have entered into some things that we need to back out of because it's bringing us down. Our language is getting saltier. We're getting more crude. We're realizing that we're being influenced versus being the influence. So God, give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us the words to say, God. And give us the strength to obey. As you promised, you were always with us. And for some of us today, we have never taken that step of repentance back to you. And like the prodigal son, we have squandered, we have wasted your riches and your grace, God. But yet, you extend your arms, you wait on the front porch. To see us come back. To take that first step of repentance, God. And you run and embrace us. And say, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and find rest for your souls. If you want to experience peace today. If your soul is in turmoil. And you are ridden with guilt. Come to the Savior today. As John Newton said, two things we know for sure. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. So if you want to come to the Savior today, I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to come to talk with me. And for some today, this may be, we talked about a few weeks ago, this may be your D-Day. This is maybe the day where the Lord is impressing upon your heart. To join in on serving the Lord together here at UBC.